Welcome to the fourth episode of the WASB Connection Podcast. This episode features conversations with WASB staff, board members, and a superintendent about how they're adapting to the teaching shortage. We'll be focusing on how school boards can create the kind of school environments that attract teachers and make them want to stay. Although salary is, I think, the one people always think is the top priority, at times working conditions jumps to the forefront as well. That was the WASB's Bob Butler, by the way, and we'll hear more from him in a moment. We'll also talk to WASB government relations staff for an update on what's happening at the Capitol. Thanks to a suggestion from someone who took our online survey, we'll include a timestamp for that legislative update in the show notes, so you can jump ahead there if you choose. There'll be a link to that nine-question survey in those notes, too, so please consider filling it out. And with us, we have Bob Butler, Associate Executive Director and Staff Counsel at the WASB. Hi, Bob. Hi, Dan. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. So I'm wondering what you've heard from districts anecdotally and maybe some data about the issues they're having with hiring and retention. Dan, we get a lot of inquiries on this. Uh, starting this time of the year as districts are going through their budget planning, preparing for their staffing levels for the next school year, and looking at the number of staff they're going to have, whether they have to do some staff reductions, or whether they're going to have some retirements or resignations take place, and what their preliminary planning is for filling those positions. But it's a topic that we address throughout the course of the year as the labor markets become tighter for educators in the state. So what can you tell us about the state of hiring and retention in Wisconsin? Well, the data that we track are both private studies that are done and then also information that comes from the federal Title I reports on hiring and also with respect to the number of staff in the state as teachers and paraprofessionals and then also looking at the number of people who are entering into higher education to get an initial teacher license and then how many of those complete the initial teacher licensure program. And over the last several years, since 2010, the number of individuals who complete the initial teacher licensure program is down almost a third. It's down 32%. So that's, that's our intake from people who've gone through that and in essence get their teacher licensure or their education degrees. And so obviously, if you have that kind of reduction, you then take a step back and say, well, did we have oversupply before and now this is a market correction? Or were there areas that were still in short supply and now this is exacerbating the supply issues? And we think in most positions, it's the latter, unfortunately. So that data tells us there are fewer prospective teachers entering the pipeline. What do we know about the number of overall teachers in Wisconsin? Well, the overall number of teachers has declined by roughly 2.2% since 2009-2010. So in the last 10 years, that's the level of reduction that we've seen in staff. And again, that's teaching staff. For students, we've had a reduction of roughly about half a percent. So there's been a modest reduction in the number of students, but a greater reduction in the number of teachers. So Bob, of course, not all teacher departures are created equal. What can you tell us about the different types of attrition? Well, first, Dan, I'm going to try to differentiate between attrition and turnover. Because from my lens, when turnover happens, turnover may affect an individual district. 
So let's say you have 100 teachers and 10 of them leave in a particular year. Well, if those 10 all stay in the education field and go work in another district, the number of teachers in the state has stayed static in the short period. And that district obviously has to fill those places, but the people haven't left the profession. Attrition is the person goes through, gets their licensure, they come in and work for your district, and then they exit the profession altogether. And that means that person is no longer in the labor market and in the supply. So we have two things to look at. One is from the local district standpoint, they want to look at turnover and try to break that into two broad categories. Are there those reasons that were unavoidable? So the person had a spousal transfer, they had a health issue that couldn't be accommodated through leave, et cetera, or they retired. But then you have things that are avoidable reasons. So the person who leaves District A to go to District B in state, why was that the case? Right. So those are probably the cases that a board should zero in on. And what do you hear as some of the biggest causes of that turnover between districts? From a school district standpoint, you'll want to figure out why are the people leaving in those broad categories and then see which ones you have some semblance of control over. So you have some semblance over the control over the working conditions. And in the research in this field, although salary is, I think, the one people always think is the top priority, at times working conditions jumps to the forefront as well as far as what is the communication and collaboration that the staff has with their frontline administrators, with the leadership team of the district, and ultimately with the school board. Right. So... What you just described, working conditions, it's a pretty broad category, right? It can encompass the details, right, or the big picture. What are some examples of working conditions that might be under a board's control? The board can control whether they wish to have meet and confer meetings with their staff to hear what their concerns are. The board can control whether they wish to administer an employee opinion survey to their staff to figure out what it is they like about the district, where, what questions they have, what things do they not like. The board has within their control the ability to do exit interviews and exit surveys of staff departing to figure out why they left this district and if they were leaving the profession, why did they leave the profession? And in my experience, those districts that have that continuous collaborative relationship with staff end up with fewer surprises. So even if the staff doesn't like some of the things that are being done, either curriculum-wise or budgetarily, At least they understand the context of why those were happening versus here's just another edict coming down and we have to live with it. And so the communication, although it takes time, it doesn't really come with a big expense. And so trying to figure out those processes locally that work for you to get that feedback from your staff to allow that collegiality to to grow, I think is... uh, very productive and beneficial, not only for staff retention, but also for looking at that team cohesion. And there are studies, Dan, that demonstrate that turnover can have a negative impact on student achievement, particularly in school districts that serve students with a high level of poverty. That seems to exacerbate it when there's more turnover in those kind of uh, situations. And into addition, turnover is incredibly expensive. So the cost of replacing an individual can range anywhere from roughly five to $15,000 plus to fill that vacancy. 
and obviously there's great variances depending upon the position to be filled and the time of year where it's going to be filled. When we talk about recruitment strategies, one of the number one things that you can do to recruit teachers is to have your own staff be ambassadors to tell their friends and colleagues in the profession, this is a place you want to work. And why do you want to work there? Well, the principal listens, she brings people in together, we collaboratively discuss issues. Ultimately, she might be the one that makes the decision, but she provides us with supports. We have peer coaches, we have peer mentors. We have an idea of what the long-term plan is for curriculum, for budgetary planning, et cetera. And then the board and the superintendent support that mission as well because we have meet and confer meetings with them to discuss issues like the employee handbook or the student code of conduct when the board comes up for discussion. You know, they listen to staff and the staff on the other side listen to the administration as to what some of the constraints are they may have to meet some of the employees' demands and concerns. But at least everybody's communicating with each other and has a shared basis of knowledge as to why things are being done. So given that teacher turnover and retention issues are particularly high among new teachers, what are some things that I as a board member can do to support those new teachers? Well, you can look again and figure out why were the people leaving. And that gives you one piece of data. The other, you're going to get information from those people that are there to hear what their concerns were when they were a first-year teacher. And you might try some novel approaches and some things that are not necessarily that novel. So I'll start with one that should be pretty consistent through all districts, and that is providing a mentor and or a peer coach for that new teacher so he or she can learn from that individual how to deal with things, everything from how do you send emails, communicate with parents, to classroom management, to what's the frequency of assessments, all those various things to make for an engaging learning environment. The other piece you may do, and I'm aware of some districts that do this, they purposefully have what I'll call a lighter load, so to speak, mm. for the new teacher. So the new teacher has more planning time. The new teacher is not hired and immediately said, oh, and by the way, you also have to be a coach and an advisor each semester. So understanding that the person is getting up to speed, they ease off a little bit on some of those other requirements so that person has more time to meet with the coach with the mentor, to prepare the lesson plans, to revisit the behavioral plan of a student that they're dealing with. And from districts that have implemented that, I've heard some very positive stories as to how the new teacher is appreciative of that. And it feels that they can, they're in the environment, they're the same as the other teachers, but they get a time to kind of acclimate to the role versus being thrown into the most difficult classroom and then also being asked, to be a coach and advisor at the same time. And just the pace of everything is too much for them to grasp right away. That makes a lot of sense, thanks. So reduced schedule sounds like a good idea. What else have you heard in that area? Well, as far as innovative practices, there have been other things that have done. We have districts who have incorporated into the school system you know, childcare facilities on site and that the childcare facilities may be birth to three, birth to four, they may be for school-aged children, but they offer these on site for the teachers to put their child into childcare at the district location for a number of reasons. One, it provides access to high quality, affordable childcare. Two, 
by having it on site, the teacher then is less likely that he or she feels compelled that they have to rush to get to the child care center. And so if they're meeting with a parent right after the school day or with a student, they know their child's just down the hallway or across campus. And some districts have even go so, gone so far as to subsidize the teacher's childcare expenses and use that as a recruitment and a retention tool with the hopes that the teacher will view this quality of life aspect of not having all those additional stressors as a reason to stay in that district. So there's a lot of things happening out there. I would just encourage districts, whether it's school board members, administrators, you know, to keep an eye on these various practices and see what works because you know, we're talking about things as trying to keep people who are already there. But there are some very creative approaches that people are using to recruit people, you know, doing very targeted niche advertising on Facebook, how they structure their web pages so they look very interactive and have staff who are new to the profession, perhaps on a video or someone who's been there for a long period of time and talking why this is a great place to teach. You know, all these various tools that they may use as a recruiting method so that when someone thinks about, well, am I going to apply for a job at that district? How is that social media platform utilized so that individual applicant views it and says, oh, this place looks like they have their act together. I can find out a lot of information about them. And then the district can target them through specific advertising venues to try to encourage them to apply for a job. And of course, compensation should be part of any discussion about retention. What kind of questions should I be asking as a board member about my salary and compensation package? Well, there are a few things you're going to want to look at. First, you're going to want to survey the staff to determine what they think of the present pay plan. And I would strongly encourage the board administration to meet and confer with the staff to determine what they think of the present pay plan, what works, what doesn't. And then you're going to have to have a conversation about sustainability because each district has different financial realities. And so what may work in one district for a pay plan may not work for another based upon the local school district budget, cost of living in the area, et cetera. So when you look at the overall pay system, you're going to want to look to see how does it align for you to attract and retain the best staff? So how do you look to attract people to fill hard to fill certification areas where there's low supply? Are there particular skills you want to pay for? And obviously, whatever you do that's a change, you want to minimize the damage to teacher morale that results from salary differentiation. So if there is going to be a differentiation from one staff person to another, you know, it should be pretty well articulated as to why it's the case. The more that you converse with staff and you have data, you're then able to look at it from a more informed decision to say, if our pay system is going to differentiate between staff, we're not saying that one teacher is more valuable than another. It's just that the labor market may demand us to pay one certification area higher than another because of the lack of applicants and people who can fill those roles. And if our listeners want to learn more and check out some of the sources themselves, they can check out the event recap under our fall regional meetings. And there they can see the presentation that you and some of our other attorneys gave before our fall regional meetings last year. Is that right? That's right, Dan. We just heard from Bob about how district-run child care can be an important benefit. So we talked to the superintendent of a district that's tried it out. 
My name is Mark Brandt, and I'm the superintendent at St. Croix Falls, uh, Wisconsin, which is in the northwest portion, about 40 minutes north of Hudson, Wisconsin. We're a smaller rural district. Uh, we have about 1,100 students. I understand last summer you started a child care center. Could you walk us through what led you to open it? Certainly. About a year before we opened it, we started having some discussions, both community-wide and with our school board, indicating that we felt there was a major need for child care, ages right birth right up through 4K. And so we started to do a little bit of research, and we found that there was one truly commercial child care in our district. And we went to the owner of that facility and indicated that we are looking at opening a child care of our own, and we wanted to make sure that we would not put him out of business if we opened. And his indication was his his list was so long that uh, if we opened, uh, he didn't view his business to be compromised at all. So we did some research, looked for some facilities. First of all, we examined our internal facilities, and we knew that we didn't have the space, but we wanted to make certain that there was not a, an available space in our district uh, buildings, and there wasn't. So we started looking for a, a place to rent or purchase, and we settled on a church um, that we rent from them, and uh, we opened that child care on August 1st. Uh, and it's been a great service because our community needs readily available quality child care and from a funding perspective, what we have done is uh, Fund 80, we run the funds through with the goal sometime in the future of breaking even. And we believe that we will be able to achieve that in a couple of years. So even if this wasn't conceived explicitly as a benefit to retain teachers, it sounds like they've appreciated knowing that there is an option close by. Is that right? Yes, certainly. We uh, I've heard from a couple of them that it's it's nice to know that that, for lack of a better term, my words, not theirs, that security blanket exists. That they know the quality of the child care that's being provided. They know that you know there there's going to be social emotional learning. It isn't. It is not a school. They don't go and sit down and learn specific uh, academics, but learning in the sense of social interactions and sharing and uh, those types of things. So our our teachers are very grateful that at least that service exists so that if they want to utilize it, it's there for them. Was it difficult to kind of come up with the money to start the child care, or was this something that the board had planned for years? How did that discussion happen? Right up front, uh, we worked with the DPI and that this could be a Fund 80 enterprise. And so we did levy additional Fund 80 dollars. And for those, for those listeners who may not be familiar with Fund 80, the community services budget, um, we levied additional dollars so that those dollars were available. So we didn't have to dip into Fund 10 fund balance or uh, you know short-term borrow or any of those types of things. So we had we had a fortunate financing mechanism that worked very well for us. What advice might you have for a district that's thinking about starting a child care center? Well, I think uh, similar to the advice that I got from other districts who had started it prior to us, you do your homework in your community. Uh, and by homework, I mean two things. Find out if there's an actual need. And then also find out if you're going to be stepping on toes as far as other providers of child care. Um, in most instances, I think most districts would find that the need exists and perhaps you can help fill that void. 
That's the first set of advice I would give. And then the second set of advice I would give is make sure your timing gives you time to talk through it at the board level, to research your options, to find a place, give yourself ample time to do the any building work that might need to be done, and give yourself ample time to hire your staff and those types of things, and give yourself some flexibility as to your opening date. Um, because if you cement in that opening date, you don't know necessarily any glitches that might occur when remodeling a building or hiring staff. We we advertised that we would be opening in the late summer. And this was about January of 2019 that we started advertising that. As we got closer to May and June, then we started to pin actual dates down. But um, give yourself some room to take care of those unexpected, uh, unforeseen circumstances. Thanks to Superintendent Brandt for coming on the podcast. And we'll have some photos on social media of Little Saints, the district's child care center. We wanted a board member's perspective as well. So we went to Roseanne Hahn, president of the Burlington Area School District. Could you tell me a little bit about your background as a teacher and then as a board member? I started my teaching at a little school in Kansasville, Wisconsin. I taught two years. Then I became part of the Burlington School District. And I taught there for 38 plus years. Great. Thanks. And you're a... WASB director? I am. I was elected to Region 13. I wanted to talk to you because as a board member and former teacher, I thought you might have a good perspective on what boards can do to help retain teachers. And given that you stayed in in one place for so long, what do you think that the district and the board did to help you stay so long? What was important to you as a teacher? I think what was important to me was um, I knew that I was being supported by my principal, and I knew I was being supported by the board. They encouraged me all the way through to continue my education, and for a while, we received compensation for credit. That was just for a short time, but just to encourage uh, teachers to move on. Uh, we used the steps and lanes, so compensation was, I would always predict what I would what I would earn. Um, I think the morale in the buildings where I taught was wonderful. There was a lot of give and take, a lot of um, trust between the teachers. I, I never had a problem with any other teacher or with the principal. They were all, everybody seemed to be interested in, in educating children. Looking at it from a policy perspective, what kinds of policies do you think are important to help retain teachers? You know, I've heard things like discipline policies, evaluation policies. I think one of the things with policy making that trickles down is that we have policies concerning the administrators, and I think we encourage in our policies to um, have the administrators work with teachers in deciding pacing, especially like with lesson plans and things. We have, we have talked about that at our meetings and encourage the administrator to make the teachers understand that everybody doesn't have to be on the same lesson every day. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, you know, to let them, we want them to be creative. Um, I think the policies in general are very pro-teacher. And on the salary side, you liked as a teacher knowing how much you'd make. So that probably speaks to the communication of the salary schedule, the, the simplicity of it. What what do you think is important uh, for board members to do regarding uh, salary? Well, I think it's important for board members to keep up with the various um, ways of compensating teachers. We use steps and lanes right now. And that's one way of doing it. But we're looking into some other things, and I think other school districts are too. And WAC is, is really good at you know, putting us in contact with people who use other uh, forms. And we have included the teacher representatives in that. 
So they come to um, the personnel meeting, and they, we discuss which, what would be best and, and what they would like and what we can do. We're kind of strapped in a way as to exactly what we can do. You only can, only can negotiate up to so much percent. Right, right. And it's not, not always uh, easy to control kind of where you go with salary, but there's still some, some steps you can take as a board. Yes, and that's what we try to do. And it's been pretty successful. Great. Is there anything I didn't ask about what a board can do to help teacher morale or help teachers stay uh, in their district? Another thing, I, if I could just add this, of course, a lot of the new teachers feel that they don't have time to teach. Mm. So many, mm-hmm. so often, they're given so many jobs, so many things they have to do that it doesn't give them a lot of time to plan for their own teaching. Uh, personally, I think we are doing excessive evaluations that take hour upon hour upon hour. And I know that that's being discussed, too, that maybe we can cut down on that a little bit. You've probably heard about exit interviews, but I talked to one board member about how her district is staying ahead of the curve. Her name is Laura Kleshevsky, and she's president of the small Goodman-Armstrong Creek School District. Our superintendent is both the superintendent and the principal. We are very small. One of the things we do in our district is called a stay interview. Two board members meet with every teacher, aides, and custodial cooking, anyone, anyone in the district can come in and do a stay interview. And we ask five or six questions and we try to find out, you know, what, what's working here? What, um, what's your biggest challenge? What's keeping you here? What might tempt you to leave? Um, And a board has to be willing to have those hard conversations. They have to be willing to sit and listen. It might be something as minor as we just did ours um, a month ago and we had uh, repeated repeatedly heard from the high school teachers that it was the amount of concessions and fundraising that's going on. Okay, that's that's something so minor, hmm. but it's causing such um, turmoil for the teacher. Well, those are easy things for the board to address. But had we not done those stay interviews, we wouldn't know that that was necessarily something that was that important. I'm not saying we weren't aware of it. Right. But I guess not to the extent where every single teacher brought it up. So it's like, okay, we need to work on this. So you said, is it every two years? Is that what you do? No, we do it every year. Oh, you do every mm-hmm. year? Yep. Two board members, the board president and one other school board member sits down. Um, teachers sign up. If they choose not to be interviewed, that's fine. Okay. But um, where I got this idea was from actually um, the WASBA magazine. I think it was back in maybe 2016 or 17. I was still teaching in my former district. And I saw where a, a huge district, I don't remember the district now, did a um, stay interview and theirs was computerized. And they wanted to get a sense of what teachers needed. Okay, what did they need to stay there? So um, that's where you know I got the idea of this, that um, the district I taught in, was having some problems and they were just re- basing everything on exit interviews. So I approached them and said, wouldn't it be better to have a stay interview? Find out why your teachers are staying. Find out what's going on right now to prevent them from leaving. That makes sense. It also occurs that just being listened to might make somebody more likely to stay. It's really can be frustrating to feel like you're not being heard, even if the problem isn't solved right away. It's probably nice to know that somebody cares enough to ask you. Is that right? Exactly. But a stay interview, it's, it's a hard conversation. Mm. School board members have to be willing to have that hard conversation. Because if you want teachers to be honest, you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. How do you follow up? So let's say you 
you hear issues, both positive and negative. You said you have you report those to the wider board anonymously. Is that right? We sit down as a board. We go over the questions and the answers. We read through every one of them, talk about them, pat ourselves on the back for the comments that tell us that we're doing the right thing. Our school is good. Teachers love to be here. Those are all good things to hear. But um, then we sit down and go through, you know, what did we feel? What needs to be addressed? Look in the show notes for a link to that Wisconsin school news story about state interviews for more details about how they work. So we're talking to Chris Kulo from WASB Government Relations. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you inviting me on the podcast. Of course. Hoping you can give us a little update on what's happening at the legislature. So actually, a lot of things have been happening recently. Uh, one of the biggest things in the news has been the uh, debate over what to do about state surplus funds. The uh, most recent state fiscal conditioner estimates for tax collections were about $800 million more than they had originally estimated based on greater than anticipated tax revenues. About half of that amount statutorily has to go into the uh, state's rainy day fund. But the other half is available for whatever the governor and the legislature would want to do with it. People are probably aware that Governor Evers came out with a plan to use some of that surplus funding to go to public schools, uh, mostly in the form of special education reimbursement aid, uh, mental health, school-based mental health funding, and sparsity aid for uh, rural school districts. Also included in that package was uh, money that went into the school aid formula for property tax relief. Almost as soon as he had released that plan, legislative Republican leaders had kind of panned it immediately, stating their preference to uh, do some kind of tax cut. Shortly after that, uh, legislative Republicans introduced a plan to cut state income taxes by $250 million, um, as well as putting some money towards the state debt, paying down the state debt, and cutting a tax on businesses that's referred to as the personal property tax. So that was their plan. They did end up passing that plan through both houses of the legislature. Republican leaders, on the other hand, have said that they will not revisit the issue this session. So if the governor does veto that plan, um, any conversation on additional tax relief or school funding would be punted to the next biennial budget process, which would begin in January 2021. As a brief aside, since our conversation with Chris, the governor did veto that bill. So, Chris, if the governor wants to spend the surplus on schools and property tax relief and the legislature wants to spend it on income tax relief and paying off debt, it seems natural to think that they might be able to come to some kind of a compromise and split the difference. Have you seen any movement toward that or any possibility that might occur? Uh, at this point, we really haven't. So the, the GOP leaders in the legislature have said that if the governor does veto their package, that this discussion will be postponed to the next state budget. That would be taken up by the next legislature after the fall elections in January of 2021. There's nothing to prevent that from happening. Um, the legislature has the power to call themselves into uh, extraordinary session. Uh, the governor has the ability to call the legislature into special session. So just because regular session has ended uh, doesn't preclude them from meeting again uh, on some, some kind of compromise package. 
Uh, but right now, it, it doesn't seem that anyone's really giving that much consideration at this point. So when we're talking about the bills the Assembly passed recently, where would you begin? The last week that the Assembly was in session, I would say one of the highlight bills, something that we, we strongly support, um, was the Tobacco 21 bill. Uh, would make all cigarettes, nicotine, tobacco products, uh, vaping products illegal to sell someone under the age of 21. Uh, obviously, we have a member-approved resolution that's pretty strong on supporting those devices not being in K-12 schools. So we, we feel that raising the age uh, to 21 is helpful in keeping those products out of schools. There was actually some uncertainty about the fate of this bill. So there was an amendment to the T21 bill that watered it down enough that actually the WSB and other school groups and either, even some other health-related groups no longer supported the bill. But what happened on the, on the floor on the last session day for the Assembly on uh, February 20th was that uh, the author of the bill did a floor amendment that actually put more teeth back into the bill. And this was, in our view, a big improvement to what had happened before. And uh, it was passed with this, with this new amendment added. And uh, we are now supporting the bill again and are hopeful that the Senate will pass it in their last uh, session day in March. We'd also like to thank the author of the bill, Representative John Spiros from Marshfield, who authored the amendment and authored the bill. So we thank him for doing that. So, Chris, if the T21 bill gets passed by the Senate and signed into law, what do you view as some of the practical consequences in schools? So we view it as a positive, just raising the age for the vaping products. I think the vaping products are the biggest concern in schools these days. They're made by some manufacturers to mimic school supplies. They're hard to detect. They're easy to hide. It's our hope that raising the age of 21 makes it less likely for kids that are still in high school to be able to access those products from friends or other means. Okay, that makes sense. So the Assembly passed several other bills in recent days, too. Could you tell us about some of them? Yeah, Dan. Uh, actually, some of the uh, bills that uh, were passed by the Assembly and sent to the Senate, there were a number of K-12 bills on that list, including incorporating cursive writing into our state model academic standards, as well as requiring uh, school boards to teach cursive writing in the elementary grades. There was also a bill that would require school boards to allow virtual charter school students that live in their districts uh, to participate on their athletic teams or extracurricular activities. There was also a bill that would expand the part-time open enrollment program. So right now that's between public high schools, a student can go to another high school, take a certain course. Uh, this bill would actually expand that to additional grades. So it actually would go down to first grade uh, for the students that would be eligible to uh, part-time open enroll. And it would also expand it to private school students uh, to be able to take courses in public schools. The program would be, the expansion would be mandatory for public schools and it would be permissive uh, for private schools. So they would be able to decide whether they wanted to participate or not. So we have a number of concerns on all of those bills from, you know, various perspectives of local control and school board authority. And we're going to keep an eye on, on what happens with those uh, heading to the Senate. Listeners can check out the Legislative Update blog for details on these bills as well as others that passed recently. Is that right? 
So yeah, thanks Dan for uh, plugging our legislative update blog. Uh, we work hard on updating that and we've had quite a few updates uh, in the past couple of weeks here uh, with session coming to a close. A lot of activity has been ramping up. Uh, it's prominently linked on the front of our website, wsb.org. So yeah, I would encourage anyone who has interest or wants more details on some of the bills I've talked about today to go there and hopefully they can find what they're looking for. So Chris, what can our members do to stay involved? Well, uh, even though the assembly says they're done for the session, the session is not over yet. So I'd encourage all of our members, if there's a bill that they're concerned about, a bill they support that's passed the assembly but has not gotten through the Senate yet, to for sure contact their senator and let them know how that bill will impact their school district and what their thoughts are on it. Because even though we're getting to the end here, um, there's still a role to be played advocacy-wise. Thanks for listening. April's school board elections are barely a month away. Next month's episode will be all about onboarding new members. I have received several phone calls from board members who are in the midst of making some really challenging decisions. And these are tough decisions that don't have exact answers. And I find that it is providing a lot of opportunity for stress. So we want to talk about how do you manage that stress while you're in that leadership business